We're going to be in John's gospel this morning, okay? Um, we're going to try to, I'm going to try to build upon Scott Cameron's excellent sermon from last week on the baptism of Jesus. Uh, that story is our preamble to the story that John and, uh, Jesus and John will kind of carry forward into another scene, okay? So John 1, 29 to 42. This uh, is divided up into a couple of sections. The first part is verses 29 to 34, and the second part is 35 and following. So we'll, we'll, we'll deal with it a, a piece at a time. The next day, John sees Jesus coming towards him. And this is great. This is a pattern we see with John. He points those around him in Jesus' direction. Behold, or the word is see. See the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Behold, or see, here's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, this is a familiar phrase to us, Lamb of God. We, we know that. We associate with Jesus. We know that. You know, that, that doesn't strike us as odd. John's audience at this time would have been startled by this. This was a unique and an odd phrase to speak of Christ. This was a different and a creative way to speak of the Messiah. Now, some of John's audience might have heard this phrase in sort of these apocalyptic terms where the Messiah is conceived of as like a ram or a lamb, that imagery. You're probably familiar with that from the book of Revelation. That's a good, that's a good catch. It also bears out in the early church writings. Uh, Revelation 7 and 17, there's the victorious lamb is exalted as the leader of God's faithful. There's that. Revelation 5, the slaughtered lamb, right, forever securing our redemption. Now, there's a lot of debate as to what John exactly means here by this phrase, Lamb of God. But I think he's primarily alluding to two Old Testament stories. The first one you heard in Exodus 12, Jesus as the Passover Lamb. He is the one who saves and redeems. The Passover Lamb, just a quick refresher, was selected based off purity. It was supposed to be without blemish, and it was then separated, i.e. consecrated, or kept holy from the rest of the flock, set apart from ministry, okay? Here at the outset of Jesus' ministry, I think there is a sense of him being set apart. Set apart. The anointed king is also the lamb of God, set apart as the one true final sacrifice for sins. So in a sense, I think his baptism can be seen as a ceremonial selection of the lamb of God. So that's one tie, and I think John is riffing off of. Here's the other, the story of Abraham and the almost sacrifice of Isaac in Genesis 22. That famous line that Abraham says to a curious Isaac, God will provide the lamb, God will provide the ram, God will provide the sacrifice, my son. Jesus being that sacrifice in our stead. And here we begin to see, Behold, or see, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we begin to see a consistent pattern emerge in the ministry of John the Baptist. Here's the one I was talking about. Here's the Lamb of God. See, look. Don't look at me. Look at him. Don't look at me. Look at him. John points past himself, and he will do this again and again. After me comes the one who surpassed me or ranks before me. This is verse 30. Uh, and John is... is Echoing John 1.15 from the prologue. John is reminding those around him that he's just the forerunner. He's just setting the stage for the real show. He's telling us that Jesus has primacy even over him. I love the way the NEB renders verse 30. It's really good. He says, John simply says this in that translation. Before I was born, he already was. <laughs> before I was born, he already was. Because he, Jesus, was before me. Now wait. 
you know, this is a little confusing, perhaps. Wait, you said you're the forerunner, but that Jesus is before you. John, help, help me out here. That had to be a little confusing, even if you believe John was Elijah, which Jesus did confirm later. What John is doing here is simply commenting uh, on a deeper level about Jesus' identity. He, here's the Alpha and the Omega, folks. This is the one who is present at the dawn of creation of the world. This is the one who, along with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, said, let us make humankind in our own image. This is the preeminent Christ. So, makes sense that Jesus is before him in that sense. I myself did not know him, moving into verse 31. John is not afraid, never been afraid of using hyperbole. He's not speaking literally here. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. Okay, His mother, Elizabeth, and Jesus' mom, Mary, they were cousins. So they probably knew each other or at least knew of each other. Again, John is speaking on a different level here about a different kind of knowledge. He's talking about Jesus' identity as the Messiah, as the Messiah. But the reason I, moving forward, John the Baptist, came baptizing with water, listen to his reason, so that the Messiah would finally be revealed to Israel. Jesus' baptism was a public affirmation of who he was. And it was a full-on Trinitarian moment of epic proportions. And Scott mentioned this last week. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the baptism of Jesus, that's their archetypal story for the Epiphany season. Okay? So a faithful John the Baptist provided the context and the means, water baptism, so that Jesus would publicly emerge as Messiah so that he would be known to Israel and then later to the whole world. Now, uh, put your human lens back on here if you can. Imagine how John could have mucked this up <laughs> had he been concerned with staying in the limelight because he did enjoy a certain amount of limelight. Imagine how he could have mucked this up by staying in that limelight rather than allowing the glory and the delight and the affirmation of God the Father to fall on Jesus more on that later. So, the scriptures say in 32, verse 32, John gave this testimony, or John bore witness, or John testified, saying this, I saw the Spirit come down as a dove and, and remain on him. This is prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah 11, Isaiah 42, Isaiah 61. Uh, I'll pull some phrases from those. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. I have put my spirit upon him. The spirit of the Lord is upon me. I mean, these are all messianic texts, speaking of Jesus, all fulfilled in the spirit alighting and remaining on Jesus in baptism. John says again, verse 33, I myself did not know him. Second mention. But the Lord, the one who sent me to baptize with water, gave me this sign and gave me this promise. I'm paraphrasing a little bit. And it's this. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, he is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. Now, if I'm in John's shoes, did he have any idea what that meant? So I, I'm, I'm heralding this person who's coming after me, and I baptize with water, but they baptize with the Holy Spirit. What in the world does that mean? We don't know. It's a question for me. Perhaps it was for John. John cleanses sins with water. Okay? Jesus is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. I don't know if he got his head around that in that moment or not. Not sure, but it's sure a question for me. Point being, until the dove came down, John was not sure who Jesus was. His messianic identity is what I mean. He had his doubts, but now he is certain, thanks to this 
kindness of God and providing a sign and a promise to John. And so John says this, I've seen and I testify that this is the Son of God. This is the chosen one. So behold or see the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay? Part one, scene change. Verses 35 and following. The next day, John is with two of his disciples. Okay, remember that? And he utters that familiar phrase again. He says, behold or see the Lamb of God. When his disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. This is cataclysmic. John the Baptist's ministry comes into sharper focus here. His job was to prepare people to meet the Messiah. That was his job, to testify to who Jesus was, and then, you know what, to hand them off. <laughs> testify to who Jesus was and then hand them off. These disciples who had faithfully followed their master, John the Baptist, had devoted their life to being his students, won't be going back to John. They've completely changed their allegiance here. They become Jesus' disciples now, following a new rabbi, following a new master. John the Baptist, he takes no offense. He yields to Jesus and to his role in God's plans. In other words, he steps aside. All yours, Jesus, all yours. Steps aside. These new disciples begin to follow Jesus, literally follow him around. And the way the text describes it, it's a little bit like this. Jesus is kind of going on ahead, and they have to catch up with him. They have to pursue him. Uh, you know, there might be a message in that. Uh, sometimes God allows us to work up a bit of a good hunger for him in order to test and see if we're serious, if we have a level of resolve for pursuing him. That's kind of the picture here. They're literally uh, chasing after Jesus or pursuing Jesus. And Jesus turns around. And he looks at them, and he asks the newbies a simple but wonderful question. What do you want? <laughs> or what are you seeking? That's the way some render it. What are you seeking? These are Jesus' first words in John's gospel. The first Jesus' first words in this gospel are a question. I love this. So fitting of John. It so fits. Jesus often uses questions to put people in touch with their hearts and their deep desires. He always takes the conversation to these deep places, these deep waters. When Jesus asks a question, he's never looking for sort of an informational response. Jesus' questions invite a relational response. They invite you to engage your own heart. And his questions are like a revelation for those who hear them. They're revealing, what do you want? What are you seeking? They say, Rabbi which is a respectful address and an indicator that they have made the transition to, we're your disciples now. Um, where are you staying? Now, you know, this tickles my funny bone a little bit because they answer a question with a question, which means they've already paid close attention to Jesus and learned something, right? They answer a question with a question. They're already well on their way to being Jesus' disciples. What do you want? Well, where are you staying? Fair enough. Now, our, our English translation's a little weak of where are you staying, the Greek carries with it a, a deeper sense than just sort of location. Uh, the meaning is closer to uh, abiding or dwelling as a deeper, richer, more settled sense. So Jesus, where are you abiding? Jesus, where are you dwelling? So there's this sense of stability about permanence. So here's the subtext of their question back to Jesus. Apparently, they just want to be with him. 
uh, deeply on some level. In some way, they desired to abide with him, to commune with him. Uh, where are you going to be, Lord? Because that's where, that's where I want to be. Okay? They don't care about the location. They're not asking an informational question. That's not what it's about. No, they want to know where, only because that's where Jesus is. <laughs> that's the reason. Okay? Where, where can we find you? Where shall we go to be with you, to receive what you have to offer? Jesus, uh, where can we go to be in your presence? What a wonderful response to following Christ. Love it. And Jesus comes back with this beautiful phrase. I mean, this whole exchange, I think, is just incredible. I love it. Jesus comes back with this. Where are you staying? Well, here's what he says. Come and see, or come and you will see. Both work. Come and see, or come and you will see. Now, how's that for evangelism? Come and see. What an intriguing invitation. Jesus offers them no real data. <laughs> he offers them no real information here, right? No hints, Jesus? Nope. <laughs> nope, come and see. You've got to take the journey and step towards him to find out. <laughs> to be a Christ follower isn't about like some sort of religious transaction that we have. You have to step into relationship with Christ. Be with him. Now, sometimes I feel, I don't know if you guys feel this way, sometimes I feel like God plays, almost plays hide-and-seek with us by leaving these little spiritual breadcrumbs to see what our level of resolve and hunger is. Are we serious, right? Uh, do we want to follow him? The road to Emmaus story comes to mind here a little bit. Now, you might have noticed already, it's hard to notice with the English language, but the Greek's a bit more clear, uh, seeing is a theme in this passage. Sight, seeing. Not just seeing something at face value, but seeing on a deep spiritual level. Some form of seeing, that verb occurs several times here. And when you see repetition in the scriptures, it means it's meaningful and it's powerful. So it highlights something we shouldn't miss. So here's the point I want to make about it without diving too deeply into it. All this talk of seeing and beholding and, and such. When Jesus says, come and see, if you're reading this in the original, it has some punch. You're like, ah, I've heard that. I know that. Come and see. And it cuts to the heart of the matter. If you want to know the word made flesh, come and see Jesus. Come and see him. Text says they followed him, saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. For it was about the 10th hour, which is about 4 p.m., Stayed with him that day. Again, there's a richness to this meaning that we miss out a little bit. It has that sense, again, of abiding and communing with. Uh, that same word was used earlier in John 1.33, and let me highlight that for you. The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain, there it is, is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. These disciples remain, they commune, they abide with Jesus. That's a bit richer than just saying, they stayed with him for the day, okay? Now, these disciples, this is, there's no grammatic way to render this correctly, they bead with Jesus. Do you know what I mean? They bead with him. Notice, nothing is said of any conversation they had that day. Nothing. I would love to have known what they said and what they exchanged, because no doubt they did, but there's nothing recorded here in the Scriptures. All we know is that these new disciples remained, abided, communed with the Lord for the rest of the day. From about 4 p.m. on, all that means is that's sort of the end of the working day. It's a natural time to transition. So they did that. So they enjoyed the presence of Jesus. They enjoyed his presence. They desired this. Now we soon discover, moving towards verse 40 and following, 
The name of one of John the Baptist's old disciples was Andrew. Andrew is familiar to us because he becomes one of the 12 in becoming one of Jesus' disciples. He's that inner circle. So think of how crucial John the Baptist's work was in this case. He helped prepare Andrew to meet Jesus. It's beautiful. Think of how crucial that is. And then Andrew, in turn, tells his brother Simon about Jesus. He says he's the Messiah. This is moving towards verses 41 and 42. Uh, Andrew brings his brother to Jesus, where he's named Cephas, Peter, by Jesus. He's offered a new name, a new destiny, a new life trajectory by Christ. John the Baptist bore witness and testified. And he must have done a pretty good job with his old disciple Andrew because the first thing Andrew did was to tell someone to testify, as John did. He tells Simon, who we know becomes Peter. And in the passage that follows, in fact, Philip becomes a follower of Christ and immediately testifies to Nathaniel, using Jesus' own words, come and see. I love that. Because of John the Baptist's faithfulness and testimony, Andrew becomes one of the 12. And by extension, so does Peter. Fairly significant implications for discipleship. Okay. In closing, two abiding related thoughts. Uh, the first, and I'm going to kind of build towards that. We have some basic building blocks of disciple making here. We do. Everyone, have you noticed, everyone's sort of paying it forward here, right? John the Baptist to Andrew to Peter to dot, 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 the world. Okay, everyone is paying it forward. The pattern we see in Scripture, someone meets Jesus and follows him, becomes his disciple. They generally tell someone about it. They tell someone else about it. They testify, to put it in the language about John. Their salvation is never just this purely uh, personal affair, best kept to themselves. It's a gift meant to be shared, a gift meant to be shared. And the method of inviting others to Jesus, come and see. Come and see. I love that. Some of you are going, that is not helpful. <laughs> That's tremendously unhelpful. I want an apologetic, man. That doesn't give me enough info, right? What if I can't answer all their questions about Jesus? What if I can't... Uh, answer all their objections to Christianity. Come and see isn't an apologetic. That is true. You're inviting someone into a way of life. You're inviting them into your life. <laughs> That's where they see Jesus fleshed out. Come and share some road together. Come and see. So the first point, if I can say it that way, your life is one big come and see to other people. Your life is one big Come and see to other people, pointing them to Jesus, inviting them, and stepping aside as John did, just, just like that. First thing, your life is one big come and see to those around you, pointing them to Jesus, inviting them into your life to see him. Second observation, <clears throat> pardon me. I want you to think really long and hard how differently this could have gone had John the Baptist been interested in taking credit, okay, and protecting his own interest. Think about that. Instead, what does he do? He keeps pointing others to Jesus. Well, John, it's not about getting the credit. It's just not. It's about glorifying Jesus. I must decrease so that he can what? Increase. Who said that? That was John. <laughs> no surprise. I must decrease so that he can increase. 
Even when John's own followers come to him, complaining that Jesus and his disciples are baptizing more people than John, right? This is John 3 and 4. You know what John does? He continues to affirm the ministry of his supposed competition, Jesus. You heard this quote? I think you have. It's amazing what gets done when you don't care who gets the credit, right? That'll preach. John lets go. John isn't concerned with getting the credit. John the Baptist's disciples, his numbers, if you will, probably dwindled greatly after Jesus' baptism. <laughs> Think about that. Can't you hear that? You know, John, you're not running a very successful ministry. I notice your numbers are really down, you know? Poor John the Baptist and his declining numbers. What mattered to John is that he point others to Jesus and that the handoff occurred. Jesus, they're all yours. Here you go. Here you go. Jesus, she's all yours. Jesus, he's all yours. Paying it forward so that the world may know. 